0: This morning, if you would, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 30. 1 Samuel, chapter 30. I'd like to read verse 6. 1 Samuel, chapter 30, verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself, and the Lord is God. And David was greatly distressed, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. This morning at the Lord will Bless Us, I'd like to look at the subject of encouragement in the right way. If you know anything about the life of David, this is a very critical time in his life. Up to this point, David has been very faithful to the king Saul. As a young lad, he was selected out to play a harp. And we find that David did so to the soothing of Saul. The day came that David was the one that defeated Saul's greatest enemy, Goliath. But as soon as that enemy was defeated, if you'll recall, as the army came back to the city, a song began to be sung that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul, being a man of envy and jealousy was not pleased with the fact that David was receiving more credit and glory than Saul was. Although David was worthy of more, because while Saul for 40 days would not go out and defeat the enemy, even though he was the king and head and shoulders above the rest of all the people of Israel, David, being just a young lad, went out with a shepherd's bag and those smooth stones, and he took that sling, and with one shot, he destroyed that giant. We find that from that moment that David began to be pursued by Saul. And when I say pursued, his life was sought. The word persecuted, persecution, that's literally what it means to be continually sought after. None of us, I imagine, in this congregation really knows what it was or is to experience what David did here. I've never had somebody persecute me to have constant pursuit against me. I've never had to worry that someone was out to get me to the point of destroying my life. And every day I had to stand in fear of that. But that's exactly where David finds himself. And over and over we find that Saul, his plans are foiled by the Lord so that he is not able to take David. Because what uh, Saul refuses to acknowledge, even though Samuel has plainly declared it, is that the kingdom has been removed by God from Saul... And David, in God's sight, has already been anointed king. But David, being a man that fears the Lord and also fears the king, is a man of great respect towards Saul and will not do anything to do him hurt. He waits patiently until God moves and God works. And when the day approaches that God will take down Saul, then David would be willing to ascend to the throne. But until that day, he still saw Saul as God's anointed, and so he would not hurt him. In fact, as you'll find on that occasion, when he was in the cave of Adullam, that there was Saul in the darkness, and David could have reached out and taken his life. But instead, he just took a piece of his garment. And as Saul exited the cave, David exited also and began to speak to Saul, even though there was a great army there against David. If you recall, David speaks to Saul and lets him know that if I wanted to destroy you, I had the opportunity, but there's never been any aught of me against you. And if you'll recall, Saul then was moved in his heart and his spirit, and he recognized that David was not against him, but David was for him. And so his heart was soothed for a moment. But then immediately that jealousy and that rage against David would rise up once again. So finally in 1 Samuel chapter 27, David recognizes that as long as Saul is alive, Saul is going to pursue him. In fact, there were times that Saul was pursuing David and they would have to come and tell Saul the Philistines have invaded the land. And so Saul would have to leave pursuing a man of his own country, a citizen of his own land, a servant of his own reign so that he could go to defend the nation. Can you imagine that? That king was so uh, involved mentally with destroying David that he was neglecting the responsibility of guarding and protecting the entire nation. So people had to come and grab his attention so that once again he would look to the defense of the nation of Israel and he would go back and fight the battle. But as soon as the battle was subdued, what would he do? He'd turn his attention right back to David. So in 1 Samuel 27, David is finally to the point he recognizes there's nothing that he can do to assuage Saul's anger. And so he comes up with the plan that he will go into a certain nation, the Philistine nation and he will dwell there. He knows that Saul will not pursue him among the Philistines. And so that's where David goes. And as he goes to that place he comes under the rule of a man by the name of Achish. And as he comes to that place he asks not for a place in the royal city he says but just give me a place in a town among the country. And so they appointed him a place called Ziklag. And the Bible says that was for the land of Judah to this day. So that's where David was going to live. But Achish tells him, you can dwell in the land and you can have this city. But know this, that when the day comes, when we go to war, that you will fight under my command. And it doesn't matter who the enemy is whether the enemy be the Amalekites or whether it be the Assyrians or whether it be the Egyptians or even the Hebrews the people of your own nation that when I give the command you're to fight for me and you know what David told him he said I will do that he lets him know that you are my head in other words I am your servant to do whatsoever you have commanded imagine where David is now in this situation living in a foreign nation just made an allegiance with a prince over him and said that I will be willing to fight even the nation from whence I come. Imagine what it must take to get to such a point like that that a man would be willing for the safety of his own life to agree to fight his own nation. But thankfully God in His providence will not allow this. God in His mercy will not allow David to raise his sword against his own countrymen. Because as the time of war comes about and they're ready to go to battle in 1 Samuel chapter 29, we find that the other princes of the land, they rise up and they tell Achish, you're not going to bring David. Here's what's going to happen. When we go into battle, David's going to be in the midst of us and his heart's going to turn back to his countrymen. And you know how he's going to soothe the heart of his king? He's going to take our heads. And when his, our heads are seen in the side of Saul, all of a sudden Saul is going to be at peace with him and David will be at peace with Saul. So we're not going to allow him to come and fight. So Achish, he comes and tells David, David, as far as I'm concerned, you're a man of integrity, a man of honor, and there's no concern I have whatsoever in you coming and fighting with us But the princes of the land, this is what they have said. And we find that David is somewhat irritated, but understand them. And so the Bible says that he goes back to Ziklag, which brings us to our text back in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It came to pass, verse 1, when David and his men were come to Ziklag after they've been turned away, it says on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives. And it says, But David was... Greatly distressed. And this is why, because the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Notice again it says, they wept till they had no more power to weep. Imagine coming home from a journey. And sometimes this happens. You get word on the way home. Maybe you've been on a vacation like we just were. And as you're traveling home, you turn on the cell phone, and all of a sudden you got uh, attachment to the world again and find out that your home is burned to the ground. Everything that you owned, everything that was precious as far as earthly goods has been destroyed. Family photographs you can never recover. Maybe some antiques that have been passed down through your family. Things that are irreplaceable. But by the mercy and grace of God, your family still with you. So there's reason to rejoice, even though at the great loss. But then there's other times that you hear of, uh, stories of maybe a father being away and a home being destroyed. And then the destruction of that home is entire family lost. Or oh, we've heard of occasions where intruders have come in and taken the lives of an entire family. And others in the family, of course, just greatly distressed over such horrible news. Well, imagine David has 600 men at this time under his command. He has taken them into this land of the Philistines. It was his decision that led them into this place. It was his decision that put them under the control of the Philistine army and also their king. It was his decision that led them out to battle against their own countrymen. But as they go out to go to battle, the Amalekites use this opportunity while they're all away from the city. And they come to the city and they burn it with fire and take all the men and all the women and all the children. Now notice it says they didn't destroy any, whether great or small. That means they spared the lives of everybody in the city, but they carried away them with them. And so as David and his men come back to the city and they see it burned with fire, you can imagine the fear that begins to well up within them. The wondering, the speculation, what's taken place here? What's happened? Are our families safe? Have they been destroyed? Are they alive or are they dead? Well, as they come on into the ruins of the city, obviously there are no graves and there are no charred bodies. And so they know that their their wives and their children have been taken away captive. I don't know what would be worse. To come home and know that through destruction your wife and children have been taken home to be with the Lord through death. Or to come home and to find they're just gone. What will the Amalekites do with them? What kind of slavery will they be subjected to? What kind of horrid conditions will they be pressed under with? What will happen to their wives and to their daughters by the men of that nation? What about their sons? Will their sons be destroyed so that they cannot rise up as enemies against the nation that has come against them? Will they be so long with them as we have seen throughout history when people have been uh, taken away captive and brainwashed that now all of a sudden the families would turn against their own families through the coercion of this nation that has taken them away? Can you imagine the imaginations running wild and all these 600 men... To the point as they wept, they had no more power to weep. And here David also is impacted by this because his two wives have likewise been taken away. And as David is obviously distressed over the decisions that he has made and seeing the result and consequence of this decision and how it's not only affected his life, but also the lives of 600 men and all their families. And then on top of that, the fact that he himself is going through a personal grief, not knowing what's going on in the lives of his family. Then the Bible says... 600 men, they speak of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. What would you do? I think I would have just sat down and said, pick up the stones. How do you really overcome? Imagine, I mean, here you are in a foreign nation. I've never been in one until this last week. My entire life's been spent on American soil. And I tell you what, on uh, yesterday morning when we stepped back on it, I was very thankful. Uh, We were very safe the whole time. The Lord blessed our trip and everything went uh, very well. I saw some things though that made me very, very grateful for where we live. Uh, Some of you who have traveled outside the nation know that we are still a very highly blessed people in this land. We took a, a tour through Belize City. We were going to go on a walk, but the man said, I wouldn't do that. And so we didn't. And we took a tour in a vehicle. And we drove all around the capital city of Belize. And you can take the worst parts of Tampa. And it still looks like a great place compared to what we saw. The Lord has blessed us greatly here. But imagine if you were in this situation. In a foreign nation. All your family has been taken away and you don't know where they're at. You don't know how to recover them. And now here you are, the leader of this people. And the people that you're leading now is rising up against you. So you have Saul against you over at home and his army. You have that nation, the Amalekites, obviously against you because they've taken everything that's dear to you. And now the men that you've trusted your lives to in battle, they likewise rise up against you. As you look at it on the surface, David had absolutely no reason to be encouraged at all. No reason to hope that he was going to be able to overcome this situation. As he looked at the outward external circumstances that he was currently surrounded by, there was no reason for David to build up his hope in God. But thankfully, David was wise in this. He had seen the hand of God over and over and over again in protecting and preserving his life. And I can imagine that in this moment when he encouraged himself in the Lord as God, what did he think back on? I think he thought back on that moment when the Lord delivered him out of the paw of the bear and out of the paw of the lion. I think he thought back on that moment that he was delivered out of the hand of the Philistine, the giant uh, Goliath. I think he even thought back on those moments that the javelins were flying through the air from the hand of Saul. And God, by His providence, allowed David to escape that. I think he thought of the moments that he was able to hide in different cities and God would spare him over and over again. I think that's all David could have thought about is all the times that God had uh, intervened in his life and reached down out of heaven itself and protected him. And that's why David could later say that the angel of the Lord encamped round about them to fear him and protect them. David had experienced it in his own life. The angel of God literally enshrouding David's life so that none could overcome him and none can overwhelm him. So David, he was greatly distressed. He wasn't just a little bit upset He was greatly distressed. What do we normally do though when we're greatly distressed? We normally make the wrong choice. We normally do not do the right thing. We normally will either fall to the fear or do the wrong thing to try to escape. That's when we'll trust to the chariots and the horses of men instead of recognizing in this moment the only help that there is, is the mighty hand of the Almighty God who sits in the heavens. David remembered it. It says he encouraged himself, not in his own strength, his own wisdom, his own prowess, and none of those things. He encouraged himself in the Lord as God. David says to Abiathar, the priest, he says, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And he did so. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, shall I pursue after the troop? Shall I overtake them? The Lord answered him, he says, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them and without fail recover all. David did exactly the right thing. In the midst of a very discouraging situation, he went to the only real source of encouragement. And that is directly to the Spirit of God itself. He didn't try to ask the priest his advice. He didn't ask the men what to do. All they were doing were taking up stones ready to destroy him. But he asked for the ephod. And he inquired directly at the throne of God himself. said, shall I pursue and shall I overcome? And the Lord says, yes, pursue and yes, you shall overcome. And as you read the rest of the story, that's exactly what happened. He pursued, he overcame, he was restored. And you know what happens right after this? The very next chapter... If you remember why David is going after the Amalekites, the Philistines are at battle with Saul. Well, in the battle with Saul, why David is having to focus on the Amalekites, and instead uh, he's not having to fight his own countrymen, thankfully. I mean, it's horrible what he's having to do, but by the grace of God, he's not having to fight Saul and his own uh, countrymen. But the Philistines are going to destroy Saul. Jonathan is going to fall. The house of Saul will be destroyed. While David is out. Recovering his family. And so when his family is recovered. Not only is his family recovered. But the throne of Israel. Now is rightfully his. What did he do? He encouraged himself in the Lord. I don't think it's circumstantial. Or coincidental. That right in the midst of the battle with the Amalekites. Saul is finally. Taken out of the way. I think because David did the right thing in encouraging himself in the Lord as God, the Lord now removed his greatest enemy. And now David can safely return home after he's known what it is to live in a foreign nation being pursued after by his own king and then being made to fight in another nation's army and then told, We don't trust you, and then to lose his family. And then his own men to rise up against him. And in all of that, think about the man that David was. I know oftentimes we focus on what he did with Bathsheba, and that was horrible. But imagine all the pressure and the strain this man was under. But what did he do? He went to God and trusted in God for his defense. So many things we can draw from that. I don't know that any of us will ever experience the depth. Of what David did there in those moments. I hope we don't. But if we do, the same God that was there in David's behalf is the same God that you and I serve to this day. The same God that helped all those men of the Old Testament out of those horrible situations is the same God that's gonna help us in every circumstance that you and I encounter during our lifetimes. You say, why would God allow this for David? See, God knew David's future better than David did. One of the things that has sometimes amazed me and sometimes even made me a little, I don't want to say irritated with the Lord, but maybe somewhat questioning of the Lord's ways, is you'll find somebody who is very dedicated to God's service and to the name of God. Somebody who seeks the Lord daily. Someone much like Job, who is upright, fears God, eschews evil... A man that, or a woman that has dedicated their entire lives and beings to making sure that their life is a life that brings honor to the name of God. And then as you watch the people that are so committed, you sometimes see and oftentimes see that those are the people that are attacked the most by the wicked. They are the ones that go through the hardest encounters in this world's experience. They are the ones that go through the deepest trials, the, uh, the harshest fires, the deepest floods... And you wonder, well, Lord, why in the world are you allowing this? Well, it's very clear that Satan often attacks the strongest, not the weakest, because if he can bring down the strongest, the weak will follow quickly thereafter. Uh, if the weakest can—I mean, if the strongest cannot stand, how then that we that are weak, how shall we? But if the strongest can stand, as a testimony, how many times has that brought encouragement to an entire people? Remember the time that. Uh, The children of Israel were fighting against the Philistines again. There were only two pieces of weaponry among all the nation. One was in the hand of Saul and one was in the hand of Jonathan. All the rest were hiding in the rocks and so was Saul up in the rocks. But what did Jonathan do? Jonathan had courage. He was under extreme strain, but yet in his courage he went against the garrison of the Philistines. He and his servant. And as he went in in the night time, remember what he did, he went up. And as he went up, he knew that God was with him. And he went into the garrison and he began to attack it in the confusion of the night. The Philistines began to slaughter one another. And to the point, they began to flee. And when Saul finds it out, he's uh, very irritated with his son. But at the same time, I had to imagine he was somewhat impressed with him. But notice what it does for all the children of Israel. As this one man, Jonathan, goes up against this entire nation of people, what happens with the children of Israel? Their hearts are encouraged, their hearts are strengthened, and they're ready to go and put their hand to the battle. Oftentimes, we see men like David go through these harsh trials. There's two reasons. One, I've already given, the devil always attacks the strongest. But the other reason, one who's strong, it takes a stronger affliction to purge the dross. Over and over throughout the Bible, we find that encouragement is so necessary. And there's often very few who employ themselves in its business. Discouragement is rampant. I mean, right now it is. In our nation, it is. You turn on the news and you look at the two candidates that we have, and I don't care which one you support, when you really look at the people and you look at their lives, when you really boil them down to their character, you can't be encouraged by who we have to select from. It's discouraging. You think out of over 300 million people in this nation, this is the two best options that we can come up with. But really, if you look at them both, it really reflects the culture of our nation as a whole, generally speaking. Then as you turn your attention to the family, how many of them are broken by divorce? How many are broken by trouble such as drugs or alcohol? or maybe gambling and other problems you look to the house of god and see because of the culture pervading our nation and the enemy that's coming in against us how few there be that really have dug in and said no matter what i'll stand with the lord i'll be faithful because he is faithful who called us it's discouraging on the surface The problem is that sometimes we just look at the surface instead of looking upward. David said in Psalm 121 that we're to look up, lift up our eyes unto the hills from whence cometh our help. For our help cometh from the Lord. The Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, He says, Look up, lift up your heads, your redemption draweth nigh. You know what David did in calling for the ephod? He was not looking at the surroundings. He wasn't looking at 600 men with stones. He was taking an implement that the priest wore. Why? So that he could look upward to the God of the priests and ask the God of heaven to intervene in his case. How many times have you called on God here recently with the plight of our nation and implored Him to look on and see where we are and to please help and bless? How many times when your family was falling apart and things were not going as you had expected, when your children were not living up to the teachings that you had brought them up to, how many times have you taken the ephod and just looked up into the heavens and asked the God who created all things to please intervene in the heart of my child and to bring them back into the way in which they've been instructed? How many times have you looked around the house of God and seen the empty seats and during the song service of the preaching just lifted up your eyes to the heavens and said to the God of heaven who is able to add to the church daily such as should be, saved? God help us and bless us. Please encourage us. David, he was greatly distressed. But David encouraged himself and the Lord is God. There's many other examples we could go to. I think of Moses. Coming to the end of his days, being charged by God to encourage another. You know the story, Moses did not sanctify the Lord his God at Kadesh. They come to Kadesh and if you remember, there was no water for the people. This is the second time. And God tells Moses, you speak to the rock. What did he do? He smote it twice. Twice. He says, here you rebels, must we fetch you water out of the rock. This happened at Kadesh. You know what Kadesh means? Sanctified, a holy place. It's interesting where it all took place. Names have great meaning in the Bible. They were in a sanctified place, a holy place. And God was to be sanctified, set apart, made holy. Well, when God speaks against Moses after He feeds the people... The water still came forth from the rock, but what did God tell Moses? He says, because you did not sanctify me in the sight of the people. What do you mean? How did he not sanctify You did not set me apart, you did not make me holy by being obedient to the commands that I gave to you. The command was to speak to the rock, and there was a reason for that. That rock was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ was to be smitten once at Calvary and never again. The Bible makes it clear He's coming the second time without sin unto salvation. There's one time He was to be smitten, and one time only. And as an emblem of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find Moses showed disrespect to God and disrespect to His Son, His Savior, and smote that rock the second time. And then also claimed credit. For what God would do, must we fetch you out water from this rock? So what does God tell Moses? You'll not go into the land. Moses, on at least two occasions, begs God to change his mind. And God says no. He says, this is what I'll do. I'll take you to Pisgah, up to Mount Nebo, and you can look into all the land, from the north, the east, the south, and the west, and you can see it. But you'll never go in. But then you know what he tells him in the very next verse, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 38. Just after he tells him, you're not going in, he says, But Joshua, the son of Nun, which standeth before thee, he shall go in thither, encourage him. For he shall cause Israel to inherit it. What would you do? <laughs> if God just told you, I'm not going to do this for you. But this person right over here, they're going to get to take the place that you should have had. And I want you to encourage them. In my selfish nature, you know what I tell the Lord? Hey, if I don't get to do it, you encourage him. Let him find his own encouragement. You've robbed me. Actually, you didn't. I robbed myself. But you know how we are in our nature. We want to accuse God, accuse the devil, accuse anybody but ourselves. But that was not what Moses did. Moses, being a man of integrity, a man of God, a man of honor... You know what he does? He does exactly as God tells him. He encourages Joshua. In fact, he brings him inside of all the people and he sets him there and he uh, gives Joshua a charge. And he lets Joshua know that he's to be encouraged and strengthened because he would be the one that uh, leads the people into the land. And he tells him this, he says, be strong and you're to be of a good courage for thou must go with this people into the land which the Lord hath sworn unto their fathers to give them. And thou shalt cause them to inherit it and the Lord, he it is that doth go before thee, he will be with thee. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee, fear not, neither be dismayed. I love how Moses encourages him. He doesn't just say, take heart, it's all going to be okay. Use the philosophies of this world, just have the, uh, use the power of positive thinking, just think positive, it'll all work out. I remember talking to somebody on the ship this week, uh, a religious person. Actually, it wasn't on the ship, it was actually our driver there in Belize City. And as he's showing us where machine guns have shot the side of walls as we're driving by, the drug lords have come in, I asked him if his car was armored. And he says he didn't need an armored car because he loved the Lord. Well, I said, well, I love the Lord too. I'd still like an armored car. Uh, You know, I know the Lord protects His people. But He doesn't always protect the ignorant. Uh, Sometimes we do foolish things and tempt the Lord and things transpire in a way uh, that we didn't think they would. This man just had some blind faith. Now, I had faith, but mine wasn't as blind as his was. I recognize that there are people of God that have faith in God that are still fallen. Moses, though, this man of God, here he is. He's not telling uh, uh, Joshua, well, just because you love the Lord, everything's going to work out. Uh, Just because uh, some flippant reason, everything is going to be okay. No, what does he tell him? he says, you're going to go into this land. You're going to cause them to inherit it. And this is why. Because the Lord, He it is that doth go before thee. God is going ahead of you. You're not going in there first. God will be there first. What happened when they went into the land? As they crossed the uh, Jordan River, if you remember in uh, Joshua chapter 5, That's right before they go and take the city of Jericho. Right at the end of Joshua chapter 5, do you remember that Joshua goes out? And as he goes out, there's a man there that has a sword drawn. He's called the captain of the host of the Lord. It's a pre incarnate vision of Jesus Christ. He's the captain of our salvation, he's the captain of God's host. Remember what Joshua asked him? Are thou for us or for our adversary? And there we find that Joshua received the battle plan. You know what that tells me? The Lord was in Jericho before Joshua and the children of Israel were there. Why? Because Moses told him. He says, the Lord, He will go before thee. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee. Neither forsake thee, fear not, neither be dismayed. Well, why could this promise stand? Because Joshua was such a great leader. He was a great leader, but that's not why. Because God, way back in Genesis chapter 15, made a promise to a man by the name of Abram. And told him that there was coming a time that his children would live in a land not theirs called Egypt. But the day would come that he would bring them out with a high hand. And they would come out with great riches. And he would bring them to the land of rest whereon that man stood. So God did not do this for Joshua. He did not do it for the children of Israel that were then living because they had been a disobedient nation. He did it to fulfill a promise that He made to His servant Abraham many hundred years prior to this. That gives me encouragement as well to know that the day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back is a day of great rejoicing for the people of God, not because we have done well. But because before the world ever began, God made a promise to His Son that He would deliver us out of this world. What did He say in the book of Titus? In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. Here God made promise to Abraham that His children would inherit the land. And now Moses says, it's time for the fulfillment of this. Joshua, you be strong, and you be of a good courage. We find that Joshua was a man that was encouraged a lot. Because Joshua not only was encouraged by... Moses, but in Joshua chapter 1, he's encouraged by God Himself. God comes to him and says this in Joshua chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Moses, my servant is dead. Say, whoa, he knew that. (laughs) Why did God have to say it? How many times have families or churches fallen apart? Because they were looking to the leadership that's now dead. I've seen families fall apart because the person that held it together passed away. I've seen churches fall apart because a pastor died. That the people had more confidence in the pastor than they did the Lord. And so at that man's death, things just began to unravel. That's the reason that he comes to joy. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Well, why say that? Because Moses is just a man. Yes, he was a man called of God, a man called for great purpose, a man God used over and over again, a mighty man in so many ways, but he's dead. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. In other words, put him out of memory. Now, that doesn't mean forget everything that he taught you, that means don't look to leadership that's no longer here. You're now the one to lead, you're now the one to go forward. You can't halt, you can't be afraid, you can't be dismayed, you can't be discouraged, you cannot let the things that uh, outwardly make you afraid uh, uh, make you halt. He says, Moses, my servant is dead, now therefore rise, go over this Jordan, and all this people unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. And over and over God will tell him, be strong and be of a good courage. What does that mean? Be encouraged, be strong. Be of a good courage. Joshua hearkened. Three days after Moses' death, they go over Jordan. And they began to conquer the land. And by the time of the death of Joshua, the land is mostly settled. Inheritances have been divided up. And the promise that had long ago been given had finally come to pass. The promise that God long ago gave... God who promised, who cannot lie, when He made the promise before the foundation of the world, seems like such a long time ago, but it's going to come to fruition. There was a day in the life of Josiah when the priest of the land had to be encouraged. Second Chronicles chapter 35, right before this in chapter 34, you'll find that the book of the law is found. If you remember the history of the children of Israel, the book of the law had been lost in the house of God. And so for several generations they didn't have the Bible. The law, the law that Moses penned, it had been lost. They weren't really following it before it was lost, so it really wasn't a big deal to them that it had been lost. They were doing things according to their own plan and method anyway. But Josiah, if you remember, when he was 8 years old, he began to reign. And this was a man that even though he did not have the law of God in written form, he definitely had it written in his heart. Because this was a man that from his youth, he recognized that there was a God to be honored and a God to be served. And so he made commandments about serving God only. However, we find that in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, as they're tearing down and remodeling in the house of God, they find some money there, but they also find the book of the law of the Lord. And when they find this, they bring it to the priest, and the priest brings it to Josiah. And when Josiah begins to read it, he recognizes how far short the children of Israel had fallen from obeying the commands that were contained there in the law of God. So it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 1, he says, Moreover, Josiah, he kept a Passover unto the Lord, the first one in a long time. He kept a Passover unto the Lord in Jerusalem, and they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. Why? Because that's when God commanded in Exodus that it was to be killed. And He set the priests in their charges and encouraged them to the service of the house of the Lord. And said unto the Levites that taught all Israel, which were holy unto the Lord, Put the holy ark in the house which Solomon the son of David, king of Israel, did build. It shall not be a burden upon your shoulders. Serve now the Lord your God and His people Israel. Here was a man that recognized we've been doing things wrong. We haven't lived up to what God had commanded. And yes, it's true that we were ignorant of His commands. But we can't claim ignorance any longer. We have the book of the law here. And so what does He do? He immediately... He doesn't wait around. It happens that this is found right before the appointed time of the Passover. And so as he reads the law of God, he recognizes it's time for this right now. And so he gives command that this is to be done. But notice how he does it. He encourages them in the service of the house of the Lord. And he tells them uh, that taught they're to put the Holy Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, back in the house that Solomon did build. He says, and it's not going to be a burden upon your shoulders. So serve the Lord your God. But also his people Israel. We can draw from that. That there may be times in our lives that we fall astray from the commands of the word of God. We shouldn't. It's readily available. We ought to be reading it. We ought to be obeying it. But when you see in your life where you've gone astray. And you look back to it. Or maybe you hear a sermon on the word of God. On an area that maybe you've not heard in a long time. And you recognize you've gone astray in that area. You know what you ought to do? Hearken to God's Word, repent, and go back to doing what the law of God has commanded us to do. When we see that we've gone astray in an area, or maybe in a a great way, and God in His mercy has seen fit to show us that and illuminate our eyes to the fact that we have fallen short of His commandments, and He encourages us through His Word, we ought to take that encouragement and do just like the, uh, the king told the Levites. He says, here you do these things. You set the Passover, you serve the house of God, and you serve the people of Israel. We come to the New Testament in First Thessalonians chapter 3. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 1, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, that means when I couldn't stand it any longer. We thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Motheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, To establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Paul has just said, When I couldn't stand it anymore, not knowing how you were doing, and knowing how we had to leave your city, I couldn't stand it. So I couldn't uh, just sit around. I sent Timothy. Well, what's the circumstances surrounding what Paul has here written? When you go to Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Silas, they come into the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a city that was much like Corinth, very wealthy, it was a merchant city. There's not a lot known about the morality of the city except this, that when the Jews rose up against Paul, we find that they chose base, uh, lewd fellows of the baser sort out of the city. Well, that tells me that there were some very ungodly people within that city. And the Jews, they used those ungodly men to rise up astir within the city. So here's the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy. They've come through the town and they're doing nothing more than preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They go to the synagogue. The Jews hate it. Many of them, though, believe and receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here these Jews. They stir up these ungodly men and they say these are the men that turn the world upside down. And now they bring their preaching here to this place. And they suppose that the Apostle Paul was in the house of one named Jason. And so they go to Jason's home. And Jason, trying to uh, spare Paul's life, he stands in between. And Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're able to escape the city. And they go to Berea. And then after Berea, Paul goes to Athens. All this is in Acts 17. So can you imagine how Paul's feeling? Here are some people that have been established, or at least had the gospel preached to them. I don't know that you could say they were yet established. When you read the wording of Acts 17, it doesn't seem that Paul was there for very long. It seems like a very short stay. And so Paul, he says, I couldn't stand it anymore. So I sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith that means i sent him to encourage but also to give you the proper footing and foundation you need as christian disciples going forward paul recognized these were young believers these were new believers and they were in a very hostile environment And so they needed somebody who was established himself. Notice what Paul says about Timothy. He says he's our brother, he's a minister of God, he's our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle and he is not. I'm above him, he's below me. He just says, here's what he is, he's a minister of God. But he's also my brother, and he's also a fellow laborer in the ministry, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul sends credentials with Timothy that says, Timothy, as far as I'm concerned, is on the very same level that I am. And so when Timothy speaks to you to establish you and to encourage you and to comfort you in your faith, you take heed to the things that he has spoken. He has been with me, he has seen, he has learned, he has heard, and he knows how to operate uh, in such a way to establish churches that are in a hostile place so that they can be encouraged and strengthened and grounded so that they can go forward. My friends, the fact is we live in such a time much as they did there in Thessalonica in our world today. What do we need? We need ministers of the gospel of Christ to establish and to comfort you concerning your faith. Because there are many in this world trying to destroy your faith. And so we need men of God who will stand up and speak up. Not harass and tear down the people of God. But encourage them. Establish them strengthen them to help them both by word but also more importantly by example we find that paul wrote the church at rome he says i long to see you that i may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established he says i want you to be encouraged david encouraged himself and the lord is god Moses, in spite of the fact he wasn't going into the promised land, he told Joshua, be strong, be of a good courage, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. God is going before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. You go on into the land. Josiah reads the book of the law and says, we've been doing it wrong. And here's the way to do it Right. And we want the blessings of God upon our nation and upon our kingdom and upon the house of God, so we're going to do it right. And I don't care what happens in the world around us. I don't care how wrong our leaders try to direct us. We as the people of God, knowing the word of God, will never have excuse to follow after their false leadership. The Bible makes it clear. Beware of false prophets. Why? He says they may inwardly or outward they may be wearing sheep's clothes. He says, but inwardly what are they? They're nothing more than ravening wolves. What do they seek to do? They seek to devour, They seek to destroy. They seek to, uh, seek to kill. They st- uh, seek to take everything precious away from you in the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep clothing. He says, but inwardly they're wolves. They'll destroy. Josiah... He stands up and he says, this is what is right. This is what we're going to do. And so he told the Levites, he didn't ask them, well, what do y'all think about it? Let's have a conference. Let's take a vote. He doesn't do that at all. He says, this is what the law of God says, and this is what you're going to do. And so he commands the Levites about what they're doing, but he does it in a very encouraging way. And so they take up the work of the Lord once again. And the Lord blesses the nation under this man, Josiah. You and I will face and have faced in our lives so many discouraging things. That's Satan's greatest tool, really, that he uses against you and I. If you're discouraged, what do you do? You just stop. You might be going through the motions, but you're not effective as a soldier in the kingdom of God when you're discouraged. I'm not. And so, if Satan can discourage us, that's all he needs to do because we can still come here together and assemble we can still sing the songs of Zion hear sermons say well that was a good meeting and go home but it has no impact in the sense of us being encouraged so that we have the courage to stand against the philosophies and the deceits of this world that's what this is all about that we gather together for To be encouraged. What does that word mean? (laughs) To have our courage built up. Why does our courage need to be built up? Because Satan tries to put it down and then we're ineffective. But when we're encouraged, we have the courage we need to take on the enemy. As we heard in our meeting a couple weeks ago. There are many different scriptures we could turn to and I know time is about out. But there's a lot of places that we can turn to in God's word... When we respect God's Word as we ought to, when we experience the different forms of discouragement that comes into our lives, fear is a form of discouragement. Sometimes we become afraid, and when we become afraid, what happens? We just pretty much halt. Fear is a very halting uh, emotion that we experience. Paul says this, and I quote this to myself a lot. And it's a good scripture to keep in memory. It says, For God had not given us the spirit of fear, but of power of love and of a sound mind. That tells me that there's fear that grips us to the point that any power that we have, or any power that we trust in in the Lord, has dissipated. In other words, we're now weak. We're not able to go forward as a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ because we do not have the strength that we have because we are bowing to fear at the moment. He says, God's also given us the spirit of love. That means to me, fear and love are opposites, generally speaking. And also of a sound mind. How many times have you yourself made foolish decisions or watched so in others because they were acting out of fear instead of the spirit of God? Now there is a correct fear. The Bible makes it clear that the fear of God... Is the beginning of wisdom. There is a fear that you and I ought to possess. But that's fear that's directed heavenward. Never earthward. And certainly never towards hell. Why? Because our God who is in the heavens. Hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. We trust that he is able. The Bible makes it very clear. Our God is faithful. God will do what He has promised, and so in times of fear, what we've lacked in doing is that we have not clung to the promises of God, and remembered that our God has made clear that we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Psalm 34, verse 4, David says, I sought the Lord, and He heard me, and delivered me from what? All my fears. He didn't say some of them or most of them. He says, in the moment that I sought Him, He heard me and He delivered me. But you know what that took? It took David first seeking Him. He said, I sought the Lord. What happened after he sought the Lord? He says, then secondly, the Lord heard me. And after the Lord heard me, what did He do? He delivered me out of all my fears. But what did it start with? David seeking the Lord in the midst of fear. There are times that you and I are going to be afraid. That's just the reality of the fallen human condition. It's going to happen. There's times I've been very afraid. But what do we do in the midst of our fear? What did David do? He said, I sought the Lord. He heard me and He delivered me. That's the answer. That's how you get encouraged in times of fear. You seek the Lord. He will hear you. The Bible makes that clear. And He will deliver. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Not just most of them. He says, God delivers the righteous out of all His afflictions, even the affliction of fear. You say, well, there's times I'm angry and that's discouraging. Obviously it is. There's times that our anger towards maybe our family or maybe even our pastor or maybe the church. What does it do? It halts us. The Lord Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, when you stand praying, forgive. What is forgiveness? <laughs> Putting away anger. <laughs> if you have ought against any that your father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. When anger is discouraging you, what's the source of it? When you find the source of it, forgive. Because when you forgive it, that anger will dissipate and go away. And Satan no longer has that as a tool. Anxiety is one of the most gripping things that I've ever experienced. I never faced anxiety much until last year. I've known people that had what they called panic attacks, anxiety attacks, and I didn't really understand it. I knew it was real, but never had had them myself. After the seizure I had last year and then the dizziness that came on after that, a lot of times that led into the same feeling that I had right before the seizure, and I couldn't tell what was about to happen. and so. There were moments that I had panic attacks and I knew anxiety at that moment like I've never known it before. So when people talk to me now about anxiety attacks, I understand it firsthand because I have experienced them. Anxiety is a very, very debilitating emotion that people endure. But the Bible speaks of that also. Psalm 46, David says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What is anxiety? It's trouble. It's the time when the mind is so troubled you cannot get it to calm down. What does he say? God is our refuge and He's our strength. He is a very present help in trouble. That means even in the moment that my mind is gripped with anxiety, my God is a refuge, He is a strength, and He is present. He is not absent from me in that moment. And I know that in that moment when anxiety is gripping your mind, it's hard to focus in on the fact that God is there, that God is with you in it, that God is your refuge, that God is your help, that God is your strength. But it's still true, whether we recognize it or bow to that or not. But the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians how to handle anxiety. First of all, he says, Be careful for nothing. That means don't be full of care. That's speaking of anxiety, he says, Be careful for nothing. Okay, now what do we do then, Paul? You just said, Don't be anxious. Well, I'm anxious. I know this sounds simple, but he goes, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall establish your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we believe that or do we not? Be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious. But if you are, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And he says, his peace, which passes understanding. You say, well, it didn't happen immediately. All I know is in those moments, continue instant in prayer. Until the cause of the anxiety passes away. And you can once again have sound mind and judgment. Just keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. Do you think that Daniel was anxious when the law was given? You can't pray. I guarantee you when he went to his room, I know he did it as he oftentimes did. He didn't change his custom. He didn't change his routine. He still went up three times a day with his window open. But you know there had to be some anxiety there as he was making his prayer to God. Why? Because he knew that if he got caught, where was he going? To a den of lions. But what did he do? He prayed anyway. Well, what do you think he had as far as anxiety is concerned when he went into the den? Do you think that he went in there just whistling uh, amazing grace, thinking all was going to be well? I do believe there was a part of him that had great confidence and boldness in the Lord. I believe that. But I also know that Daniel was a man like you and I are men, and there had to be some wondering in his mind. As he sees lions in there, he had to wonder what's going to happen while I'm in this place. You know those thoughts had to cross his mind. I mean, there are moments in our lives that we don't know what's going to transpire. You go into the doctor's office and hear the word cancer. You know God is able to heal. You know that He's able to create the world out of nothing. You know that He can take care of these things. But where does your mind go to? It goes to writing out the will and making the funeral arrangements. You know that uh, there's a strong likelihood that this could end in your death. And so even though you know God is able, you also recognize through experience, but also just out of fear that the worst is probably going to happen or may well happen. Daniel had to be thinking those things. But what did the Lord do? He just closed the mouths of the lion. I've often wondered, did Daniel see a hand close them? Or did they just close up and peacefully lay there? Who knows? But the Lord took care of him there. I guarantee you, though, Daniel spent time praying. If Daniel went three times a day to his room to pray, I guarantee you as he was on his way to that den, there were a lot of prayers going up to heaven for him, or by him there that day. Sometimes we feel defeated. I have felt that many times. What's the point? How many times have you come to the house of God and wondered what's the point? I've heard it from young mothers who cannot hear a sermon because their children are not willing to sit still. So what's the point in going? Well, because that's the place where you bring up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And you may not be receiving much from the gospel right now. But little ears are picking up things. If nothing else, they're picking up Habits. The day will come when they'll silently sit and you'll get to hear the gospel priest once again. Say, well, what's the point for me right now? Well, the point is you're obeying the command of God to bring up your child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. God has not promised skies always blue. He has a promise that every time that we come that we're going to receive some miraculous blessing out of the events. But he has commanded that this is our reasonable service and it's what we ought to do. The moment you feel defeated, the best place you can go is Romans chapter 8, starting about verse 31. Read at the end of the chapter, where Paul says that we are more than conquerors. Not we will be at some point, but we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Remember the words, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you remember those things, it's hard to feel defeated. There's times you just need guidance. Times you don't know the answer. I love Psalm 32, verse 8. It says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Solomon said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. What will He do? In all thy ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy paths. There's times that when you don't know the answer, it's very discouraging. Waiting for an answer can be very discouraging. Hope thou in God, David said in Psalm 42. David said, I waited patiently. For the Lord, and, he, and he, he heard me, He inclined unto my cry. David, in a very, very difficult situation, he was distressed greatly. But he encouraged himself in the Lord as God. You and I are going to be distressed over and over and over again and in so many ways. Through despair, through guilt... Through loneliness. So many things that you and I go through, but you know every one of those emotions that we can face, there's a scripture that answers to that. And there's always a God in heaven that helps for that. The best thing that I know to instruct is just like David said, I sought the Lord. He heard me and he delivered me. Is that not what he did in 1 Samuel 30? David sought him. God heard him. And God delivered him. In the moments that you're discouraged, speak to other saints. And other saints, when you see one discouraged, encourage them. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that we're to comfort one another wherewith we have been comforted of God. In other words, whatever comfort God has given you in the past, you know they have a saying now, pay it forward. <laughs> well, God already had that saying a long time ago. Paul used it in 2 Corinthians 1. When God comforts you, You now have the responsibility to use that same comfort to comfort someone else. When you see someone else discouraged, we have the responsibility to try to be an encouragement to them. Don't try to beat them over the head in the moment of discouragement. That just makes it worse. Pray with them. Talk with them. Just listen. But always point them back to the source. David went to the Lord. I sought him. He heard me. And He delivered me. Those are three principles I encourage you to cling to as you go forward in life. May God bless you today as I pray.